You are listening to the Science and Soul of Living Well, where we highlight evidence-based tools from psychological science and complementary and alternative medicine to help us all cultivate resilience and live with more meaning, purpose, and alignment with personal values, even in the most stressful and darkest of times. I'm Melissa Mingfoynes, your host, and I am also a clinical psychologist and educator, trauma-informed mindfulness meditation and yoga teacher, and Ayurvedic doula. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me for this week's podcast. Before I introduce a very special guest for today, I just wanted to remind you all about my new free four-part video series on the science and soul of building resilience. If you're interested in learning more, you can find a link in the episode notes. It is with a huge amount of pleasure and joy and gratitude that I introduce Dr. Jennifer J. Fried, who is the founder and president of the Center for Institutional Courage. Dr. Fried is also a keynote speaker, author, and professor emerit of psychology with over 30 years of experience researching people and their relationships with institutions. Dr. Fried introduced the concepts of institutional courage, institutional betrayal, DARVO, and betrayal trauma. And I have the distinct honor and privilege of having Jennifer, having had Jennifer as my mentor in graduate school. And in addition to Jennifer's amazing professional guidance and what she modeled to me as a scholar and a professional and and all that she helped me discover in terms of forging my own path and professional identity. Jennifer is just an incredible human being that I am so grateful to know. And she has taught me so much about what courage really means and how to live a life in accordance with our values, even when that means taking risks and how to recover when people don't respond positively when we are brave and and courageous. And so I have a lot to thank her for. And she continues to be a huge source of inspiration in my life to this day and is someone that I look to for guidance. So Jennifer, thank you so, so much for being here today. Well, thank you for having me. And what an incredibly nice introduction. I I think that's the nicest introduction I've ever had. And I just have to say that two things. One, I learned so much from you, including about courage. And um, two, the works that we did together, the research, I, to this day, cite it, tell people about it. I feel like it's some of the best work that I was fortunate enough to be able to do. So uh, it's it's mutual admiration. <laughs> well, thank you, Jennifer, for lifting 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 that up and mentioning it. And I I feel like I can't quite do justice to you and and our relationship in this short time together. So I'm glad that that felt like a um, a heartfelt introduction because it it is everything that I that I believe. So. Jennifer, you have had an incredible career, and I thought it might be useful to begin by talking about what drew you in the beginning to studying betrayal, because you have spoken so much in your research and training and 
speaking engagements about the effects of betrayal on personal and interpersonal and institutional levels and how we can as a collective heal from some of the harmful effects of betrayal in its many forms and encounter some of the systems that allow betrayal to occur and that even perpetuated at times. So I would love to start by just hearing a bit from you about what drew you to the study of, of betrayal in the beginning. Well, you know, the short answer to that is that uh, because I was myself betrayed and I didn't understand the impact, I didn't even have that label when I first was drawn to the questions that led to my work on betrayal. The longer answer is that I was in the year 1990, a, a tenured but fairly young professor of psychology who had studied memory for about 10 years, memory and perception. And in those 10 years, I had never learned about or particularly even questioned how memory applies in what you might call sort of a strong emotional situations and particularly in traumatic situations. And around the year 1990 and the years right before and after it, there was a lot of media attention to people coming forward and saying that they had recently remembered events of past ab of abuse in the past that they had forgotten for some period of time. And this phenomenon impacted me personally, but it was also in the newspapers for other people. And it was intellectually incredibly fascinating and a puzzle for me um, in addition to having all this personal significance. So it was like the personal and the intellectual came together. And I really was motivated to understand how and why people could experience something so horrible as to be abused and then forget it. Mm -hmm. and, and I think this is something that is so important to disseminate this research and this knowledge, because as you know, there is so much questioning of people who have been traumatized in various forms. And this is often used as a way to discredit people to say, well, well, how could you have had this period of time where you didn't remember? Or how could you have an inconsistent memory of something that that was so traumatic. And, and so I think it is an important way to counter some of these myths and misperceptions that still infiltrate the public perception. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because there, I, I like to explain to people that there's really two separate questions whenever there's something you don't understand and maybe don't believe. One is, does that thing happen? And the other is, do you know why? And often what happens um, in doubting trauma survivors when they describe their experiences, because we don't understand their reaction, we doubt what they're telling us. We don't know why they're reacting the, the way they are, so we think it didn't happen. And that's really unfortunate because those are two separate questions. And I sometimes draw the analogy to our understanding of bumblebee flight. For a very long time, people could not actually explain bumblebee flight. They have big fat bodies and little tiny wings, and they don't use the same aerodynamics as birds and airplanes. In fact, they use um, the turbulence created by the wings 
beating in a certain way. It took scientists a very long time to figure that out. So there was a period of time where you could, where people could see with their own eyes that bumblebees fly, but no one could really explain how they did it. You know, there's a, often in psychology, we can't see with our own eyes in quite the same sense as you can see bumblebee flight, but people tell us they've had certain reactions or experiences and if we don't understand why, sometimes we discount them. It would be like telling bumblebees, you're not flying because I don't understand how you can be flying. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's really a problem. So when it comes to memories for past traumas, I, I do think I have developed an explanation that accounts for at least some of the forgetting. But even if I hadn't, there's plenty of evidence that people some people experience traumas and forget them. And some of those people that forget them later remember them. And even if we don't understand why, there's plenty of evidence that does occur. And it's really problematic to just not believe people as a rule when they tell you that they've had such a, an experience. Yeah, and it's reminding me, Jennifer, about this other level of harm that gets caused in that this self-doubt can get internalized. And so when we don't understand our own experience or like you shared earlier about your experience, not having the label betrayal to name your experience, sometimes when we don't have the words or or we can't quite put, put into, our we can't quite articulate what we've been through, we do doubt our experience. We do question it. We do wonder, was it as impactful as it, as it feels? And so it's not just the reactions of other people that are damaging. It's the way in which we can internalize unintentionally some of those messages as well. You're right. And it, it really does help to have labels and it helps to have causal explanations. It helps to understand why, why we would have certain reactions. It certainly helped me to understand in my own case, why I might've had certain experiences. And, um, you know, I get the feedback from people that, that the labels and explanations can be very, very healing for people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think there's something for many people that when we can put a name to it, it, it feels validating. It, it feels yeah. like, um, there's some legitimacy there and it, it can be a, a helpful part of the, the process. And Jennifer, I know that you've done a significant amount of research on these ideas of betrayal, blindness, and forgetting abuse or having inconsistent memory for abuse. And I'm wondering if there are some highlights you could share with listeners who are less familiar with these concepts and your work, what are some of the ways in which your research has contributed to the explanations for why we might forget or not be that aware of some harms or traumas that have, that we've endured in our lives? Yeah, well, let me begin with a, a short explanation of what I call betrayal blindness. And this comes from betrayal trauma theory. So there's two things that are undoubtedly true about human beings. And these two things sometimes come into conflict with each other. So one thing is that we are sensitive to betrayal. And this is because we're a very social species. We're constantly making essentially deals with other people. Sometimes we, those are very explicit 
you can call these contracts, like um, I'll give you this money and you give me this product, but often they're implicit in the nature of the relationship. Like with a best friend, I will keep your secrets and you keep my secrets. Whenever we have deals and they happen all the time, all day long, because we're very social, we can be betrayed because we've made a sort of agreement. I'll give you this, you give me that. And it can, if it goes just one direction, that can be a betrayal. Betrayals are very costly to us. And we, we can really lose our resources, our lives if we get betrayed. So it makes sense. We're going to be really sensitive to it. And if we notice it, we're going to take protective action. And there's two kinds of protective action we can take when we're empowered. One is to confront the person and say, don't do that ever again and make this right. And the other is to withdraw from the relationship and say, I can't trust you. I'm not going to interact with you anymore. And depending on the circumstance, we'll do either or both of those things. Well, that's that's one, one thing to keep in mind. The other thing to keep in mind that's a true about us is that we are often highly dependent upon another person. And the nature of dependency is a kind of asymmetry and resources. So a child is dependent on parents and in, it's extremely the case in infancy where a child is utterly dependent on parents or caregivers. Um, the nature of dependency for humans is so, so profound that we have a very well-developed attachment system and this is given to us through evolution. So it's hardwired into us. And then an attachment system makes sure that both the receiver of the caregiving and the caregiver are motivated to keep that relationship going. So if you think about a caregiver and a baby, for instance, there's a reciprocal relationship in the sense that they, they each reinforce the relationship with each other, even though there's an asymmetric distribution of the resources, the parents giving many more resources to the baby, but the baby's doing something really important, which is reinforcing the parent with all sorts of engagement, the really cute cueing, cueing sounds and eye fixation and smiles and touch that humans are evolved to find very reinforcing. So if you think about that, and the, and the way we experience all this is through the emotion of love. If you think about it, when you're in a reciprocal love relationship, the things you do to be, to be loved are to be lovable, which is to love the other. So the, the reciprocity really helps that relationship and ensures it, that it functions. Well, what happens when the caregiver is also an abuser? This creates an impossible bind for the baby child or dependent adult because if they respond to that betrayal in the empowered way with confrontation or withdrawal, then they risk further mistreatment. They need to stay engaged in that relationship. And the best way to stay engaged in the relationship is to be lovable, to in, in, um, approach, to connect. And it's in that situation, I hypothesized, there would be an advantage to actually being unaware of the betrayal. And I call that betrayal blindness because it can be right in front of your eyes and you, and you can just not see it. And with that theory in mind, we went on to do some research testing that as a hypothesis and found out that sure enough, if you look at, a, say, a, a compare cases of child abuse when the, 
abuser was a parent or caregiver versus child abuse by somebody the child wasn't so dependent on, you see much more forgetting when it's an abuser, I mean, sorry, when it's a, a parent or caregiver. In other words, the, the nature of the relationship really impacts the memory awareness over time. It's consistent with this theory, this hypothesis of betrayal trauma theory that forgetting exists to preserve a, re, a necessary relationship. I really appreciate this explanation, Jennifer, because it's making it, I think, very digestible and accessible to, to listeners. And one thing that strikes me as you're talking is that even in attachment relationships in adulthood, where we may potentially have more reciprocity in in terms of the ways we give and and receive, that there still is this human wiring for connection and to maintain relationship. And so it's a really non-pathologizing way to think about betrayal and the effects that it can have when it comes to awareness and memory, because it's about being human and it's about how we're wired. And one of the ways in which we're wired is, is towards protection. And as you said, doing what we need to be loved, which is often being, being lovable and showing care and attention towards someone who has harmed us, even in other developmental stages of our lives. Absolutely. And in fact, one of the saddest things about betrayal is that people often have a shame response to having been betrayed. And even that shame response has a function. So um, as with forgetting, feeling shame is a way to preserve a relationship because it's taking the, the bad behavior of the perpetrator onto oneself. And that helps you keep engaged with the relationship, but it's very costly to the person who feels shame. Shame is one of the the most costly emotions we can have internally. And often I talk to people and they express shame for having been betrayed and as if they did something wrong to be betrayed. And sometimes they say what they did wrong was to feel love in the first place. Like, especially, this is especially true if they get betrayed by um, an organization. And, and this can happen to people profoundly where they are a member of a religious organization or a school or, or um, any kind of institution. And that institution betrays them. And afterwards, they're just sort of beating themselves up saying, why did I let myself get so attached that I could feel this bad? And, you know, I, I wish I could, I wish I could protect people from, from feeling mad at themselves for their very, very human reaction. In fact, I would argue it's, it's a good thing that they can get so attached. It's a very human thing. It means their attachment system's working and there's nothing wrong with loving. That, that's not where the harm comes. The harm comes from the, the exploitation of that, the abuse, the mistreatment. Um, so one of the you know, things I hope to do for people is to at least kind of help them be compassionate with themselves for having had a very human reaction. Absolutely. And I think that is one of the really powerful aspects 
of your work. And I think it also intersects a bit with this concept of Darvo as well, where there are certain societal reactions, whether it's happening at an interpersonal level or a peer-based level or an institutional level that can perpetuate that sense of shame, that can send the message that we have done something wrong because it detracts from the person who has actually engaged in, in the wrongdoing. And so it's another way to have compassion for ourselves in that when we we blame ourselves, that's not entirely our fault either, because that is something that is perpetuated in, in society too. Yeah. Well, we haven't really talked about DARVO yet, but um, maybe this is a good, good time to, but it, one of the things we've learned from work on DARVO is that when people get DARVO'd, they are more likely to blame themselves. So mm. it's, it, it's a really predictable outcome of that. Jennifer, would you mind sharing a bit about about DARVO and your research on DARVO? Because I I do think this is a nice segue into introducing this concept. Yes. So DARVO is an acronym that I came up with quite a long time ago um, in the late 90s. And it stands for D, deny, A, attack, RVO, reverse victim and offender. It's a it's a, you could think of it as a strategy a perpetrator can use to deflect blame. So D-deny, they'll say um, to somebody who's accusing them of something, they'll say, no, I didn't do that. And sometimes the denials are really over the top. They can, they can attack the person, the credibility usually of the person making the accusation. So they say, you are crazy, or you're just doing this to extract money from me, or your memory system isn't working. You've confused me with somebody else. They, they really um, attack that credibility. But then the most pernicious part is reversing victim and offender, where they say, I am the victim in this situation because you're accusing me of something I didn't do. And thus they put that true victim into the offender role. And this can be very effective um, where people don't even necessarily realize it's happening to them. It's a, it's a kind of specific gaslighting, I guess you could say, because reality gets turned inside out. Our research has shown that DARVO is associated with victim self-blame. That is when a victim gets DARVO, they're more likely to blame themselves for the event. And that is to say it's quite effective for the perpetrator. We've also found that when third parties like observers are asked to evaluate the credibility of a victim and perpetrator account, if the perpetrator uses DARVO, they doubt the victim, again, suggesting it's an effective strategy. And I think we've seen it on the national stage. Um, I first really um, came up with this idea, started to think about it in the early 90s, watching the hearings between Anita Hill and Clarence Thomas, where Anita Hill's credibility was so attacked and the roles of victim and offender were reversed. And of course, her, her allegations were denied. Um, it was also something I experienced in my own life. I was myself darboed. But I, I saw it again, really, really, I think, in, in its full force during the Kavanaugh hearings a couple of years ago, where Dr. Christine Blasey Ford was her testimony was denied, 
her credibility was attacked and she was often discussed as if she was the, the offender and Kavanaugh was the victim. I, I think one thing that really strikes me about Darvo, which you did highlight, Jennifer, is that it is such an effective strategy, so much so that sometimes in the moment, often in the moment, we don't realize we're being Darvoed. And when I think back to experiences in my life in which I have been Darvoed, I didn't necessarily recognize it in that way at the time. And, and like you said, there were times where I engaged in significant self-doubt and, and self-blame or, or questioned my own reality or perception. Am I Am I blowing this out of proportion? Am I? And again, I think that speaks to how how pernicious, to use your word, this strategy is. Again, it doesn't speak to there being anything wrong with us. It's just how how effective this strategy can be at having us discredit ourselves and having other people not only discredit us, but as you said, attack us and treat us as though we are the offenders who have caused harm. Yeah, there is one one glimmer of hope, which is. We did have um, do one study where we we randomly um, divided people into two groups, and one group we taught them the concept of DARPO, and um, the other group we we taught them something different. And when we compared later how susceptible they were to um, to doubting the victim when they were exposed to accounts that either DARPOed or didn't DARPO. We found that the people that had learned the concept weren't as susceptible to the effectiveness of DARVO as if mm. as if it just made it less powerful to be able to identify it, which kind of relates to the, what you were talking about earlier, that having a name and a concept can, can really help people cope in the world. So I think we need to do a lot more research about this. But, but at this point, I would say our, at least our results to date suggest that there is a real benefit to educating people about this. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great, great point. And a, as you said, something that is very hopeful about this research. And I'm, I'm wondering if you have other ideas, Jennifer, either from your research or your personal and professional experience about, about ways that we can counteract DARVO respond when we are Darvoed. It seems like one important piece is simply knowing that that Darvo exists, knowing this is a dynamic that can exist when harm is caused, whether that that harm is on the scale of sexual violence or racism or oppression or even in the day to day. I, I can see this in, in my own life and in other people's lives playing out in terms of day to day day relationships where there are certain missteps or mistakes that happen and a family member or friend confronts another about the harm that was caused. But at any rate, I'm wondering if you have thoughts about, in addition to educating ourselves and, and naming DARVA when it happens, being able to identify it more in the moment, what are some other ways that we can both individually and collectively work towards undoing the harmful effects of DARVO or responding when it occurs or preventing the likelihood of it occurring in the first place? Yeah, it's, it's interesting because in a way this sort of relates to the work that you and I did, you know, that I mentioned earlier. Um, when, when we did studies, we looked at how we could teach people to be better listeners 
mm. when they heard a, a distressing story from somebody else. Mm-hmm. And we, we didn't specifically ask the question, what do you do if you're accused of doing something wrong? But mm-hmm. often those things go together. Somebody um, is telling a ter- you know, how distressed they were by something. And they're also saying to the person who's listening, you had a role in this, you hurt me in some way. And one thing I think we can do, so in, in your and my work, one, one thing we discovered is we could teach people to become better listeners. Mm-hmm. And I, I suspect that we could teach people to some extent to, to not darvo. So some people are going to darvo no matter what we ask them because it's an, you know, they, they find it an effective strategy. Mm-hmm. But I think some people end up engaging in darvo responses without necessarily realizing that's what they're doing or planning to do. It's a, it's a very convenient way to be defensive, basically. Mm-hmm. And, and so my, my thought is that we could at least reduce how prevalent DARVO is by teaching people alternative ways to respond. It's sort of like the anti-DARVO response. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the ideal thing is like, if you're accused of something you really did do, what's the most anti-DARVO thing you can do? It's to acknowledge it and apologize. So to say, oh my God, you know, I, I, you're right. I did this thing. I am so sorry. And, and so on. You know, people have a hard time acknowledging and apologizing that they caused harm. And sometimes they get accused of something they truly didn't do. So what, what do you do if you're been accused of something that you think you didn't do? Well, do you have to darvo? No, you can still have a, a, a more constructive response. Um, and this mm-hmm. is, I thought about this a lot with the, actually with the Anita Hill Clarence Thomas case where let's say Anita Hill had been wrong. I mean, I don't think she was wrong. I found her very credible, but let's say for the moment she was wrong and Clarence Thomas hadn't done those things to her, she said. Clarence Thomas had been head of the EEOC. He more than almost anyone should know how important it is to invite such discussions to occur. And he could have said, oh my God, I, I, you know, I am so sorry that, that you think that I did these things. If I did them, I, I'm even more sorry. I don't recall this. It's not how I remember it, but I know how important it is to have an open discussion about this. And I, mm. I really want to hear, I really want to hear everything and, and try to understand why we have such different perspectives on how things happened. So it, that is, he could have responded both by de- saying, you know, denying it in some sense, saying, no, I, I don't think this happened, but in a respectful way that didn't put himself into the victim role and didn't question the credibility of the person making the accusation. You know, the irony is I would actually find that a more compelling defense. Mm. I'd be more likely to believe the person who said that because I would think, wow, you know, they seem pretty open-minded. Um, maybe maybe the, the accusation really isn't true. Um, but that that's, uh, you know, not the response that's so, so frequent. In any case, I think it doesn't, it's not the conversation stopper that DARVO is. The problem with DARVO is it just shuts everybody up. They, whether they're the one trying to speak about what happened to them or they're just listening and they're like, oh, I better never talk about the things that happened to me if this is the kind of response I'm going to get. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. And I, I think there's so much richness in what you said, Jennifer, about, about ways that we can respond that don't involve DARVO, regardless of whether or not we feel like we have caused harm. And, and one is this stance of, of curiosity. And this links back to something you said earlier, how we so often doubt things we don't understand. And so if we can approach each other with more of a curiosity rather than a presumption of knowing that that can open up dialogue and it can also lead us to have more compassion and be more help us facilitate our perspective taking and it also occurs to me that you acknowledge the the willingness to be vulnerable and to sit with discomfort and uncomfortable emotions that might arise in these conversations and and also the accountability piece of being willing to do what it takes to repair. And that might involve a verbal apology. And it also might involve more. It might involve a commitment to change our behavior in a certain way. And, and it might involve more of a systemic commitment or an institutional commitment. And I know that that links to your work regarding institutional betrayal and institutional courage as well, but just that there are a lot of different attitudes and stances that we can embody to counteract these conditioned, perhaps, tendencies toward DARVO in ourselves and also help us engage with each other in a way that promotes connection and resolution rather than than distancing. Yeah, I think there's so much benefit we could get in our world by better education for people on how to have these difficult conversations. And I, I think about my own experience as a parent watching my children go through all the different grades of school and all the things they learned and didn't learn. So, you know, obviously they learned academic subjects, but they learned a lot of other things too. They learned various personal safety things about um, nutrition and sex education, but, and even like to wear a bike helmet. But the thing that they really more or less did not learn was how to have conversations about difficult experiences or emotions. Mm -hmm. And that's such a glaring missing part of education. And of course, that's what you and I looked at in college, that we could teach some of that, those skills. Mm -hmm. And I think, what if we started that in an age-appropriate way? But what if we started that you know, in the earliest years of school and every year kind of built upon that knowledge base, how much better, it wouldn't fix everything. There's lots of other things we need to do, but I think it would make a real dent in some of the problems we have Mm -hmm. if we provided that education in our, you know, both formally in our schooling and, and, you know, in our more, maybe more informally in our culture um, so that people, first of all, can learn to sit, as you said, to sit with some of the difficult feelings and uncertainty. And they, they can learn both how to listen, but also what to expect from listeners when they make those kind of disclosures. Mm. I, I absolutely agree with you about the importance of, of education and recognizing that these skills are teachable, they're trainable, even when we have been conditioned otherwise, even later in life, we can still learn and embody these skills. And it occurs to me that there's also 
in the lack of education in this domain, there is often this message that gets sent that there is a right and a wrong perspective that that the goal in the midst of difficult conversation is to determine whose perspective is more right or more wrong. And yes, of course, there are certain circumstances in particularly when it comes to sexual violence, for for example, where there may be a need to to determine whose perspective are, are we going to weigh more heavily towards. But in many circumstances, more day-to-day circumstances that don't involve perpetration of violence and do involve some of these misunderstandings and mistakes and miscues that we experience in our relationships, multiple realities can be held simultaneously and, and there is room for different perspectives. And when we can detach from the need to be right, that is something that can allow for more compassion and curiosity and willingness to be vulnerable. But when we feel like someone needs to be right and someone's going to be wrong, it does promote more defensiveness. And so it's almost like it's not just about the skills. It's also about some of the messages that get sent about relationships and conflict and resolution. Yeah, I I absolutely agree with you. And I would say even when it comes to violence, It's often the case that the person hearing about an allegation of violence isn't themselves responsible for determining the truth or who to believe. Um, There are are certainly people who have that responsibility. So it's certainly, you know, in 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 a trial, the jury has that responsibility very explicitly. Um, and there, there are other circumstances where there is a responsibility, but often there's um, a bigger responsibility, and, which is to listen and to um, create a space where people can express themselves and um, even to hold, you know, some, some uncertainty for them. So it, it's a mistake, I think, for people to feel it's their duty or job to try to determine the facts of matters they can't possibly actually determine just based on what somebody tells them. And I I think this is a confusion often between the difference between rushing to believe something versus respecting the person who is talking and really listening to Mm. that person closely. And, you know, I, I um, I really think it's fine for people to to believe or not believe, whatever it is, they believe or don't believe when they hear somebody. What's not fine is for them to be disrespectful and harmful in their response. So, you know, if somebody tells you that they had a certain experience and you find it kind of hard to believe, uh, you can sit with that. That's, that's your reaction. You don't have to express to that other person disbelief. Mm-hmm. Um, what you can do is respond is express respect, curiosity, and compassion. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, th- I think there is an important place to recognize, as you said, what is our role, what is our responsibility, and, and that includes processing our own reactions. And we don't always need to express every thought that occurs to us. And, and there are ways that we can be effective when when we are being met with difficult emotions or certain judgments even 
and or reactions. So I think that's a very important point that I'm glad that you you raised. I think one reason also is just so important is sometimes we're just wrong. And and I mean, I, this happens to all of us where we doubt somebody when they tell us something and and the person told what they told us was true, but we just can't believe it because it's outside of what we understand or what we want the way the world to be. And and so I think having a certain humility there is really important. And at the same time, um, being forced to believe something we don't believe isn't going to help either. So I think, yeah, I think there's this important distinction to be made between one's immediate sort of belief, disbelief, reaction, and and one's responsibility to another human being in that moment. Mm-hmm. I, I love how you phrase that because part of our responsibility to each other can, can be framed in this curious, compassionate, vulnerable kind of way. It's like that, that is, that is how we, I think one, one of the ways in which we can engage in collective healing is to repair some of the harm that has been caused again, not because it's our duty or responsibility to, to, remediate that or rectify it in some way, but just as fellow human beings walking this planet together, we do have power to not perpetuate some of these dynamics and to create healing spaces in which people can feel heard and attended to in a way that really resonates and lands. And and there's a lot of power in that. Yeah, I agree. Well, Jennifer, I, I know that that we're about at our time and there's so much more that, that we could say and that I want to ask you about, but in the spirit of, of wrapping up, is there anything else that you want to share when it comes to this idea of healing and how we can contribute to our individual healing and collective healing when it comes to some of these experiences we have with trauma, with betrayal, with, with Darvo? Yeah, I mean, I I would love to just um, end with uh, the thought that, you know, so so often interpersonal betrayals and harms occur in institutional contexts because we're so embedded in institutions, in our schools and in our government and hospitals and workplaces. And institutions hold a lot of power. Institutions can betray us but they can also create really um, powerful healing spaces for us. And it's, it's this realization that's led me to focus in the last few years on institutional courage, which is kind of the antidote to institutional betrayal. It's not a, a simple opposite, but it's a, it's a mindset and an approach that is addresses institutional betrayal and helps prevent it. And in, Institutional courage, we, and we've created this center for institutional courage, but what we fundamentally do is ask institutions to prioritize the well being of individuals dependent upon them, even when it requires the institution taking some short term risk and, and facing some unpleasantness. And this is, is not the way things are usually done, but but there are cases where there's been really powerful, wonderful institutional courage, and we see such good effects. So 
um, I think there's hope for the future. And I, I think that courage is so much a part of what will bring that, that better future to us. I, I so agree with you. And I, that is one reason that I love you and your work so much is that it, does leave us with a sense of hope and inspiration for, for what is possible. And as you said, it's not like it is without risk or easy to be courageous in the ways that we often need to be in order to promote healing, but it is so worth it. And when we consider the fact of our interconnectedness as human beings and how when one person is suffering that has ripple effects and repercussions that affect us all. It's, it's, it's really about a way to, to promote healing for us all, not, not just any, the individual is important. And so is the collective given that interconnectedness. So I so agree with you. Well, Jennifer, thank you so, so much for having this conversation with me today. I, I feel like I can't fully express in, in words what a joy it is to, to connect with you in this way and in this platform. And I continue to have a deep bow of gratitude to you for who you are and all that you do in the world and all that you contribute to making it a, a better place. So thank you so much for this thank conversation you. today. Thank you. This has been very meaningful for me too. So I really appreciate it. Oh, you're so welcome. Thank you for listening to the science and soul of living well. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe, share it with others, or leave us a review. If you'd like to reach out or connect more, please follow me on Instagram. I hope you'll join us next time.